are on part uh, four of our series on the gates. Um, next week, I'll be preaching on the dung gate. And yes, the sermon will stick, <laughs> guaranteed. And, uh, but today, I'm talking about the valley gate. And the valley gate is a gate that I, I, I can tell you that this morning that uh, the Lord wants to minister deeply on a whole nother level. And so I hope, hopefully I can pastor you this morning because uh, these are some issues that we need to address in our lives. Um, the scripture on this series is James 4, 7, which says, Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Can we declare that together? Amen. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. So we have a purpose First of all, to submit ourselves to the Lord Jesus Christ. He's not just our Savior, but He's our Master. As we submit ourselves to Him, His authority comes on our lives so that we can resist the devil. I, I'm excited. So there's, a, there's an important process that we go through when we submit to the Lord. We are, when we're obedient to the Lord, it's not just so that, uh, you know, we're good for Santa Claus and so we get some good gifts. We get authority when we walk in obedience to the Lord, when we submit ourselves, and then we have authority to resist. And this morning I want to address some of the things in our hearts that keep us from resisting. That's one of the things we will address. What's keeping me from resistance? And it basically says, what is in us that keeps us, hear me on this, from being able to resist the enemy? You know, Jesus talked about the demonic realm and the spiritual realm. And he says this, he says, and how can one enter into the house of the strong man and plunder his goods unless he first bind the strong man? Then he will plunder his house. Now, if you don't understand the process here, in this scripture, you and I are the strong men of our house. Amen. We are the strong man. Enemy wants to bind us. In our nation right now, we have the, what's called the Second Amendment, which is the right to bear arms. If we have, if we lose that, the enemy's going to come in and rob our entire house. There's a spiritual principle, and there's demonic powers right now Resisting us in our government, trying to take away our ability to defend ourselves. And the enemy wants you undefended. And so if we can address those things in our lives that are binding us, we can, we can address those spirits. And when I talk about spirits, I believe in the spiritual realm, a spirit is almost like a virus. It's something that you catch. It's something that if your immune system is not built up to, it's likely that you're going you're gonna to catch it. And the, the thing we go against at the valley gate is pride. If we have humility, it's going to do us a lot of good keeping us from being under the influence of what we call the Leviathan spirit. Now, I'm a pastor, and I'm a very practical guy. And oftentimes, when we talk about spiritual things, it can get kind of fruity, nutty, and flaky. Come on, how many have been there before, right? And so I love to ground everything I say in the scriptures. Is that okay? If it's not okay with you, 
you don't have the mic, I do. So we're going to ground it in the scripture. And I want to talk about the characteristics of the spirit. The enemy at the gates of the valley gate is called the spirit of Leviathan. And I believe that this spirit dominates the majority of churches that most of you and I have been to. It's a very strong spirit. It's prideful. It's controlling. It, it focuses so much on being right. It squashes the spirit. I can tell you as a pastor, when I first came to this church, and I remember, like, we would do some wild Friday night services, and then Sunday morning, I would feel this different spirit here. It was almost like you can't be wild and free on Sunday morning because so-and-so will be offended. And I said, that's not right, Lord. You're the same on Friday night as you are on Sunday morning. This must be some of the people that are coming out on Sunday mornings might have a different spirit operating in them, and I might be a people pleaser. You can say, ouch or amen. And you feel that. How many have felt that you walk into a place and you can almost feel like you can't raise your hands? You can't dance. You can't shout. You can't, you can't express yourself to God. It's, it's not even anybody says anything. And it's sad. It's even happened in some of the churches and under some of the leadership that you would never think it would happen to. I had a friend of mine, and he went to a, a charismatic church one time, and it becomes so full of Leviathan and pride and control that he went there, and he was just like, yeah, the music was good. And so he gets, he just starts, he raises his hands. And the band stopped, and the worship leader said, sir, do you have a question? <laughs> That is terrible. And everything becomes so controlled and so judgmental. And that's Leviathan. And, and man, I tell you, I was like, Lord, deliver me from Leviathan. I don't want this thing anywhere near me or my ministry. Because the goal is that we get into this place of the presence and the glory of God. How many want the glory of God at Gateway Church? All right. I want the glory. That doesn't mean that everything's going to go perfect or nice and everything's going to sound the best all the time or everyone's going to be happy. That's not the way it is. We're going after the glory. And I like to use this word. It's called transcendency. And it's, and it's, this word is defined as an existence or experience beyond the normal or physical level. How many want a supernatural transcendent experience when you come to church? That's what I signed up for is I want to I see the power of God. I want people like levitating off the floor and going, wow, that was pretty cool. I mean, you know, I want, I want to see the power of God happen in, when we show up together. And transcendence is basically just as a, a picture of the glory of God. And I, I've taught this at a, a conservative theological seminary, uh, and I got a lot of this from just reading some of the, the more liturgical books but understanding how a lot of churches that you and I have attended, they believe that they get into transcendence through this place of reverence, through liturgy or ceremony. You can put up that picture. There's a, a, they, they enter into the glory of God. How do we get it? The next slide, if you would, is they believe like, that through liturgy and ceremony, you know, it's always the, oh, there's, you know, doing all these things, kneeling at the right time. And everything has to be the way the preacher says to do it. How many have been to churches like that before? You're standing, you're sitting, you're kneeling, you're reading exactly what says. Uh, 
you know, I was raised in a Catholic church, so there was a lot of liturgy and ceremony that we had to perform, and it was under the understanding that if you followed it perfectly, the glory of God would come. Are you guys following me? That was the understanding. So you had to be very concentrated that when Father so-and-so said, kneel, you, you, you kneeled, and, and, then, and then you got up at the right time, and, and you're looking around hoping that you do everything correctly. That's how they believe. That's the idea behind how to get into the glory of God. Now, when you come to Gateway, I'm not throwing out liturgy and ceremony. I think there's a place for it. But Gateway, we believe that it's through passion and zeal that we enter into the glory of God. There's intimacy. Put up the next slide. It's through intimacy, through passion and zeal and just saying, God, I love you. And, and it's like daddy's home and, and we're pressing into his presence. And that's how we enter into the glory of God. And so what happens is, is I believe it's actually both. I don't believe it's one or the other, but I believe we need to have both the reverence and the honor. And there are times for, you know, ceremonial things that we do that we need to honor and respect. But we, we need to mix that with our intimacy and passion in our worship. And then the glory of God comes. So I wanted to give you that picture of what transcendence, what the glory of God is. It's actually the Hebrew word, the Shekinah glory. Ever hear that word? The Shekinah glory. And it actually means the dwelling place of God. It comes from the, the Hebrew word Shekan, which means to dwell. How many know God wants to not visit us. He wants to dwell, dwell in our midst and dwell in each and every one of us. So it's important that you and I go through a spiritual cleansing every day. And this is why I do declarations and prayers based on these 10 gates every day over my life, because I begin with cleansing myself. How many know this generation, we need a spiritual cleansing? You need a spiritual shower every day you wake up from what you see going on, from what you're happening. And that's what the blood of Jesus does. That's what the sheep gate represents, the sacrifice and the cleansing. But as we come to the valley gate, I want you to notice, I'm going to talk about three different lives uh, shortly here. But the first one I want to talk about is that Nehemiah, I want to talk about Nehemiah, and I want to talk about the job for Nehemiah. This was his job. Nehemiah got called by God to restore the walls and the gates of his city. And he went to the city believing that he heard from God, knowing he was broken and he needed to, to do what God had called him to do. But the first gate that Nehemiah went through to inspect the city was the valley gate. I want to explain that, why that is important. And it says this in Nehemiah 2, 13 and 15. Nehemiah arrives at the city of Jerusalem. He doesn't tell anybody what he's doing, but he knows that his city is in a disarray. Any city that just has a place of worship but is not surrounded and protected by walls and gates is in danger. It's in disgrace. We are like the spiritual city of Jerusalem that through declaration and prayer, we build up our gates and we build up our walls. So that the enemy could be attacking us and we don't even know it because we have been so surrounded with prayer and declaration. Amen. How many know the only thing the devil ever complained about in the Bible was the hedge that God put around Job? How many want to make the devil complain about you? Yeah. Man, that stupid hedge. 
I can't get him. I can't get him. Why? Because he's hedged around. How does that hedge happen? Through prayer and through declaration. The power of life and death is in your tongue. You have a duty to pray, a responsibility to pray, to build. And it doesn't have to take a long time. It took Nehemiah 52 days to establish the 10 gates and build the walls. And let me tell you this, is that we need to have those gateways established in our lives. And understanding that if we have one door that's left open, the thief only needs one door to go through to take the entire house or the entire city. So we have to be aware of our finances, of our humility, of our worship, of self-evaluation. We have to be aware of ourselves so that we are not allowing the doors open to the enemy. We're resisting the enemy. We're the strong men of our house, and we're resisting. Amen. So Nehemiah came to the city, and it says this in Nehemiah 2, 13 and 15. He says, I went out by night by the valley gate to the dragon spring and to the dung gate, and I expected the walls of Jerusalem that were broken down and its gates had been destroyed by fire. And if you could show that picture of Jerusalem, Nehemiah came to the city and he came through the valley gate and it basically said there was so much rubble by the time he got to the dung gate. Now, can you imagine what the dung gate is? The poop gate? I don't know how it's the label. It all had the manure gate. All right, we're going to be talking about that gate next week. And that's where we all have to begin. The valley gate represents humility, that we're evaluating our lives. We're willing to take a hard look at our lives, listening to people. And one of the main issues in the body of Christ right now is our own arrogance, our own pride. We have, we have had a measure of success here, and instead of it going to our heart, it's gone to our head. And I'm gonna talk to you a little harder today. I'm not going to ask you if it's okay because that's where we're going. But when we look at the word valley, and the, and the word valley in Hebrew is the word gay, and it's used to describe a valley or gorge with lofty sides. I always think of the pride movement right now that we are not celebrating, by the way. And um, it relates to uh, just a meaning of like a, a valley or a gorge. It comes from the, the Hebrew word geva, which means exaltation, arrogance, lifting up or pride. Therefore, the valley gate is, it represents the pride of life. And we are um, called to walk in humility. And let me give you some de definitions and some scriptures for humility. James 4, 6 says, but he gives more grace. That is why scripture says that God opposes the proud, but he shows favor to the humble. Now, I want to define humility because I think a lot of people are in false humility instead of true humility. False humility is say, oh, I can't do that. No, I can't do that. The Bible says that Moses was the humblest man that ever lived. But Moses wrote that. So humility must have a different definition than what we think. Today I'm preaching the most amazing sermon ever preached on humility, and it's by me. Here we go. What does that mean? Humility is not this thing like, oh, I'm nothing, God's everything. Humility is dependence on God. That means I'm going to do some crazy stuff that if God doesn't show up, I'm in big trouble. Okay? 
And that's what true humility is. It's not going in confidence saying, I, you know, I put myself in positions over the last two years that I was not comfortable in. Like showing up at a Richmond school board meeting without a mask on. I was not comfortable being there. A number of us, we were not comfortable. We were not in our place. We were not honored. We were not treated kindly. But we had to stand. Because if you can allow someone to put a medical device over your face, the next thing they want you to do is pull up your arm and we want to stick this in you. You hear me? If they can take away our medical freedom, they've taken away our freedom. And your pastor's not going to stand for that, even if I'm uncomfortable. So it took great humility, not pride, to go down to those meetings and have the police called on you, speak to you, threaten you. It took great humility. I was fearful. But I said, God, this is where you've called me to be. And if we walk out of there and, you know, because we went down there one meeting and they shut down the whole meeting because we wouldn't put our mask on. But... I'll tell you this, it takes humility to do that because it's, it's scary. You're putting yourself in a position that, God, this is a mess. I don't want to be here, but I want to be obedient. And that's what true humility is. It's accepting something that you're not even good at, but you're doing it because God tells you to do it. God opposes the proud. It doesn't matter if you're a Christian or not. He will oppose you. Because humility is dependence on God in every situation. The problem with most ministries, most governments, most school systems, is they've done it right, they've had a measure of success, it goes to their heads, and they don't listen to people anymore. Yep. Same thing that happens in a church. You know, hey, we've been successful here, successful here. Why should I listen to you or you or you? Because we've had success. That's not humility. And I've been in ministry before, and God has opposed me in ministry. How many know you don't want God opposing your pastor? That's a bad day. So you want to say, well, Lord, how do we walk in humility? Because there's so many promises about humility. 1 Peter 5, 6 says, Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand, that he may lift you up in due time. So whose job is it to humble yourself? Whose job is it to be humble? It's your job. You humble yourself. Don't pray, God, humble me. That's not his job. He'll do it for you. But you, it's better that you do it yourself. And how do you humble yourself? You show, you live a life of dependence on God every day. When, when I don't get my way, Lord, I humble myself before you. Show me what to do. Help me be obedient in this situation. God, I'm scared right now. I don't want to be obedient. I don't want to go do this or do that. Lord, I want to be, but I want to be obedient to you. Pride is the excessive belief in one's abilities that interferes with the individual's recognition of the grace of God. We'll read that again. Pride is the excessive belief in one's own abilities that interferes with the individual's recognition of the grace of God. How do we identify as people dependent on God? We pray. We worship. We attend fellowship together. We evangelize. We are dependent on the Lord through our actions. We're asking others to pray for us. We're dependent on God. It's not, hey, I have a lot of experience doing this, and I've always had success. Therefore, I don't need to listen to people anymore. Not a good plan. Pride 
is not cured by working harder. I'm going to say that again. You don't cure pride by working harder. Some, many people, especially when we open ourselves up to this thing called Leviathan, where it's, it's this spirit of, I'm going to be strong in this situation. How many know God doesn't want you always to be like, I will do this? That's not a good plan. And we have to learn how to listen to God and to be obedient to him. Did you know that humility gives you access to all the fruit of the Spirit? How many want the fruit of the Spirit? How many want your, your spouse to have the fruit of the Spirit? Amen, right? Amen, yeah, I, want, I want my roommate to have the fruit of the Spirit. I think it was Voltaire, the great atheist. He says, the great, not so great atheist. He says, I'm not a Christian, but I sure want my servant to be. Otherwise, he might murder me in the middle of the night. Thank God for that. I want everyone to walk in the fruit of the Spirit. How do we access the fruit of the Spirit is through humility. I asked the Lord one time, Lord, why is humility not in the fruit of the Spirit? He said, because humility is the doorway or the access point to all the fruit of the Spirit. You don't have peace, Lord? Thank you for your peace. You stop and you pray. Lord, I don't have self-control. Lord, thank you. Give me self-control. You humble yourself. I'm dependent on God. And you're inviting his presence into our lives. You understand that's, that's how you enter in to the kingdom. It's through humility. And notice that uh, seriousness is not a fruit of the Spirit. Part of being under the spirit of Leviathan is having to be right. And that's a very dangerous place to be. We have to be forever learners, forever listeners, and continue to grow in that. God can use anyone to speak to you. And I always like to say that people who claim that being right is their highest motive, even a broken clock is right twice a day. I'm right, I'm right, I'm right. You see, it's 327, I'm right. Well, twice a day you'll be right, but you're broken. And we sometimes put too much of a focus on being right instead of just being humble and dependent on God. One of the best examples of the other job I want to talk about, jo Joseph had a job as well. And we talked about Nehemiah. He started at the valley gate with humility. God, I need you in my life to inspect the gates, to inspect his life. But what we love about Joseph is no matter what Joseph went through, he showed true humility. Remember at the very end of Joseph's life, Genesis 50, 20, because his brothers had betrayed him, thrown him in a pit. He was, he was sent to Egypt as a slave. He had worked in a prison. He'd, he'd work uh, as a slave of, of, of the prison guard's home. I mean, he had a rough 13 years of his life. But what he told his brothers in Genesis 50, 20, you intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. Can you believe that even the stupid stuff people have done to you, God can turn it around and use it for good? Can you be that crazy? Now, I'm not saying that we don't put boundaries up in our lives to dangerous people, but we should never hold on to offense because that's what will keep us in captivity. And we need to break free from that. Because some people are just prideful and hard-hearted because they've never forgiven.
But when you stay in that, when you hold on to that hurt, you hold on to that hurt, what happens is, is it hardens your heart and you begin to keep God out. You begin to trust in self instead of trusting in God. James 1.21 says, Therefore get rid of all moral filth and evil that is so prevalent and humbly accept the word planted in you which can save you. You know, there's a humility that comes to the word. You know, next week I'm going to be talking about hell. And it's humble. It takes humility to embrace the scriptures at, on some controversial topics. How many have noticed that? Like, God, why does the Bible have to be so controversial? Right? Why can't it just be everyone would like it? That's part of humility. I'm identifying with the word of God. That there's two genders. It's male and female. That never changes. And if you can violate Genesis chapter 1 and 2, you can throw out the whole Bible after that. I'm not going to be using your personal pronouns that you desire that I call you. I, it won't happen because that's making me a liar, that I'd be denying reality that you're either male or female. doesn't matter what body part you get adjusted. Your body is still either 100% male, 100% female. That doesn't change. Don't ask me to lie. That's reality. We have to have a stand. Now, is that accepted or is that, is that applauded today in our society? Absolutely not. It takes humility to say, hey, I stand with the word of God on this issue. I'm not changing. And don't ask me to change. These are the foundations of our society. And I'm standing strong in them. You're offended, but that's because it's truth. And some of you have never heard truth before, and it feels offensive. But that's not on me. We have to stand strong. True humility is obedience. Obedience to the word of God. Standing on God's word, even, if you're even when you're persecuted. It's not, if, it's not if anymore, it's when you're persecuted, so you know. Uh, dependence. Andrew Murray said that dependence is the basis of humility. Someone who's just dependent on the Lord. I love the picture he gives. He says, Humility, we need to be like water that's always rushing to the lowest place because that's where God's presence is. And no matter what, we never stop. Hey, I, I'm, I'm, gonna, I'm not going to hold offense. I'm not going to stay offended. Will stuff happen to you? Absolutely. Will people tick you off? Absolutely. But I take it to the Lord. I forgive. Lord, what do you want me to do? You want me to confront this? You want me to talk about it? You want me to say something? You want me to, how do you want me to process it? But I cannot hold on to the hurt because that's how the enemy comes in. Joseph, he was obedient. He was, Joseph was unoffendable. Come on. That man was unoffendable. His, his own family ditched him and betrayed him. He gave us, a, a, you know, he gave a, an interpreter a dream to the guy in prison. And the guy forgot him for two years. I could be like, what's up? I just... Interpret your dream and you lived, you know, and so people are going to forget you. And sometimes that's the Lord. And so God, whatever's happening around you, just say, hey, God's going to use it for good. That, you know, Deb and I, we've been married 31 years. And for many of our, and something happens wrong. And if she does something, I'm like, uh, okay, God, you're going to work it for good. Like, I believe even my wife's mistakes, God can turn around for good. How many believe that about your spouse, Right. You understand? You get into that mentality, not that she makes any mistakes at all, <clears throat> just so we're saying. Um, but, you know, that's, that's what well, God can even use. Sometimes it's like, oh, we're late for this. 
okay, but maybe it was, we, it, we avoided something because we were late. Like, I mean, you could justify this. I mean, some things we just need to change, but uh, I better get off this topic. Anyway, um, happy birthday, honey. Joseph was hardworking, humble and hardworking. He worked hard everywhere he went to. He never took out the victim card and said, oh, you treated me wrong, so I'm going to be a victim. He, everywhere he went, he worked his tail off. He worked himself up to the highest position as a slave. He was like, I, I'm going to be the best. Pontifer's like, hey, you can have everything in my house, said my wife, you know, but everything. He worked hard. You understand? That's true humility. He was able to let go of the hurt. And I keep feeling this today. I keep seeing the word hurt spelled H-E-R-T. Some of you today need to forgive something that a female has done to you. Hurt. H-E-R-T. Keep seeing that. Spirit. Forgive. Let go. But you understand, Joseph had to forgive the woman who accused him of, of rape, falsely accused of a sex crime. I mean, that's not a good day for a ministry person, right? Ouch. It happens. Joseph forgave her. Joseph forgave his brothers. And he worked hard even after he was betrayed. So he gets, he gets lied on by Potiphar's wife, gets thrown in the prison. And he's in prison serving. And he gets to the highest place in the prison. And I love what Debbie said. She preached this one time. And the reason why Joseph was talking to everybody, he noticed that people weren't happy. What prisoner is happy? Like Joseph, Joseph's prison was that good that people were happy. And when someone wasn't happy, he's like, what's wrong with you? That's how good Joseph's prison was. I mean, like, I'm going to go to Joseph's prison right now. But that's how the dude was hardworking and he was humble. He didn't quit. And I love this about Joseph is he never stopped using his gifts. Come on. That's wrong. I'm just going to say, if you quit using the gift, gifts God has given you, you're in pride and you're hurt. You need to forgive. You need to let God use you, guys. Come on. You understand? Because Joseph was always interpreting dreams. You know, he was interpreting dreams for the guy that was in prison. He interpreted his dreams that's what led him out, and he interpreted Pharaoh's dreams. But what got Joseph in trouble in the first place? He interpreted dreams. Okay? So if you've been thrown under the bus because you're using your gifts, come on. That's normal. I had, I had a young girl in my, in my kids' ministry, and she, um, you know, her parents were in a rough time one time, and she was just, as a little kid walking around the house singing and worshiping, and her, the, the, the mom just went off on her and shut up. I don't want to hear your voice anymore. It's annoying. And, you know, how many know we have bad days as parents? And so this girl stopped singing. And she, went, she, was, she went, eventually went up to college. And during a time, a ministry time, they had a time to forgive her hurt from her mom, her hurt. She forgave her mom. The next night, she went back up to the altar. She, she heard the Lord say, I want you to be a worship leader. And then she started leading worship all over the United States. But because of that hurt that she held inside, it didn't allow her gift to manifest. You understand? That's why letting go of those hurts, forgiving them, hey, listen, what you did to harm me, God's going to use it for good. I'm not holding on to it. To me, when you attack me, it shows me 
God's probably with me, and there's something good coming really soon. How many want to be like Joseph? Amen? So the last person I want to talk about is how many know Job had a job? Job had a job. How many love the book of Job, right? And I love the book of Job. I love the book of Job, okay? And uh, I need to land this pretty soon. So you guys doing all right? Okay. And Job is a very powerful book. Job was extremely successful. How many know that Job, he was successful, the richest man, one of the most wealthiest men, uh, important people in the land, and the enemy came in and attacked him. And the, the theme of the book of Job is Job is actually crying out for a mediator, for someone to stand between him and God. That prayer was answered when Jesus came to planet Earth. How many know Jesus is our mediator between God and man? That's, what, that's the role Jesus took. He took the role of an intercessor. He's your prayer partner. Isn't that amazing? When you pray, Jesus comes and prays with you, helps you pray to the Father. That's a good day right there, by the way. Job did not have a mediator. He didn't have a lawyer. That's the reason why the devil was able to overcome him. We have a mediator. We have an intercessor. We have someone that can stand between us and the judge. And how many know it's not, sometimes it's not the crime you commit, it's the lawyer that you have. Oh, come on, are you guys with me today? Right? It's not the crime that you did. If you got a good lawyer, you're going to get off. Jesus is a good lawyer. He will help you win your case. Job could not win his case because he had no one to stand between him and God. So people say, well, I'm like Job. The only thing we're called to remember with Job is his patience and his endurance and that he was doubly rewarded through what he went through. We're never told to remember Job's sufferings. So remember what Job went through and what his reward was. My Bible says he got double. How many many know double's okay? Double for your trouble? So Job is in the midst of, you know, everything is taken away from him. He's, you know, he's he's got scabs. He's scraping scabs off his body. It's a terrible day. And then he has three friends that come and they say some pretty nasty stuff about him, accuse him. And he has another guy shows up, Eliphaz, which I believe is a, the pre-incarnate Jesus showing up, possibly. I believe it's a person of wisdom that shows up. Um, other people think it's some different, but that's just my interpretation. But at the end of the book of Job, Job asks the Lord 160 questions. And if you've never read the book of Job, go through it. At the end of the book, he starts asking God, like, why is this and why is this and why is this? And then what the Lord does in response to Job is he asks him back 166 questions. Like, who are you to say that you create the wind that you say this? But did you know that at the very end of Job's, uh, of the Lord's conversation of all the questions the Lord asked Job, at the very end, he asked him 34 questions about Leviathan. What? Like, that's a little off topic, isn't it? It's almost like you're talking to someone and you want to kind of close the conversation with what the main point really is. And that's what I believe the Lord was doing. He talks to him for an entire chapter 
about Leviathan and how strong this thing is and how it might be what is manifested in Job's life. And he goes on to say, the Leviathan spirit is, it's a spirit that comes in through pride, through selfishness, through control, through being strong and powerful and not being dependent on the Lord, seeing the success that you've had in your past life and depending on that instead of depending on the Lord. That's a dangerous place to be. And what God says to Job, and I kind of shortened this down, he says, can you draw out Leviathan with a fish hook? Can you put a rope into his nose? This is Job 41. Will you play with him as a bird? Oh, this is my favorite. Or will you bind him up, put him on a leash for your girls? Come here, Leviathan. Come on. Here, honey. Go play with Leviathan. Oh, this is fun. No, he's saying you can't do that. This thing is a monster. It's strong. It's powerful. He says, you lay your hand on him and remember the battle and you will do so no more. Behold, the hope of him is in vain. To conquer him is in vain. This is one spirit that I can tell you, it's a spirit you do not attack. All the other spirits that we address, all the other enemies, I say take authority over, cast out. This is one spirit that the Lord said, don't attack this thing because it is powerful and is strong. And the only way you break its hold is through humility. Because if you have open doors of pride in your life, this spirit will find its way into your life. It'll manifest. You'll feel it overcome you. You'll feel your inability to, to stop and to control and to become like in, 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 in almost driven when God says you need not to work harder at this place. You need to humble yourself. See, this is what the Bible says in Isaiah 27.1 because I had to battle this. Dev and I had to put up with this thing even in our, our ministry we were involved in. It came upon our entire ministry and it almost killed us. It was a strong spirit. And I had to go through a lot of spiritual cleansing in my own life of repentance and realizing, Chris, you think too much of yourself. You don't listen to people because you think you have the answer already. Ouch. You've had success, and then we can take that success that God gives us, and then we could say, well, God, I don't need you anymore because I read a book. I don't need you anymore, Lord, because I got three years of success. I've got an award. Right? That's not a good plan because God will oppose you at that place. And he gives grace to humble people, but he opposes that pride. Am I stepping on your toes a little bit this morning? Can I pastor you this morning? This is a demonic force, and it's, it's very difficult. It's, it's impossible to get free by casting it out. And it says this in Isaiah 21. In that day, Yahweh with his hand, with his hard and great and strong sword, will punish Leviathan. It's through the sword of, Levi, it's through the sword of Yahweh that will destroy this thing. It's not through us. It's through him. And this is where we humble ourselves and say, Lord, I need this thing out of my life. Now, interestingly enough, is we find Job was, the uh, Lord confronted Job and said to Job, he says, would you discredit my justice? Would you condemn me to justify yourself? This is what the Lord told Job. And I believe that's some of the summary of the book of Job 
is that he was discrediting God's goodness and his justice, and he was condemning God to justify his own self, his own works. But we find at the very end of the book of Job, when he's talking about Leviathan, he says, on earth there is, no, there is not his equal that, that is made without fear. He sees everything that is high. He is king over all the sons of pride. Who is Leviathan the king over? Prideful people. How many want Leviathan to be their king? Not me. <laughs> he will be your king if you're prideful. So we need to dethrone Leviathan. Amen? Amen. And let Jesus take his rightful place. But that only comes through humility. It comes through forgiveness. And this is how the story of Job ends. God turned everything around for Job, but it didn't happen until he let go, until he forgave those who were critical of him. And many ministers and ministries stumble because they get a measure of success and then people turn on them. Now, in my personal belief is that when God gives me a stage or gives me success, I try to blow it up as quick as possible. Serious. I try to do something like I know I'm going to offend somebody when I do this because I don't want a stage. I want to be obedient. I'm going to blow it up. And so because Job forgave those who were critical of him, God turned his captivity around. Job 42.10 says this, Yahweh turned the captivity of Job when he prayed for his friends. That takes humility, doesn't it? How many want your t captivity turned around?